Hey, SBCC Digital Fam, Mariah here. So glad that you chose to join us today. Today, we're actually starting a new series called Old Creed, New World. And today, Jason will take you through a lot of the framework of what that will look like and give us a good starting point this morning by discussing what belief and what creed even means. But before we get there, just want to remind you again, if you consider South Bend City Church to be your home, even if you're not physically here in South Bend and you want to give to what we're doing here, you can do that by going to southbendcitychurch.com backslash give. Regardless of where you're listening from or where you're at, we're just so thankful that you're a part of our community and so thankful that you chose to join us today. All right, let's join in with Jason for this first week of Old Creed, New World. Good morning. Welcome. My name's Jason. Uh, if we haven't met, I'd love to catch you afterwards. Uh, I brought my coffee because I was one of those troubled by the game last night, mostly because of the bet that I lost to my father, who is a Buckeye fan. I know, right? He's a part of our church, too, but you can judge him for that. Uh, it's one of the few things that we ostracize people for around here. I kid. Uh, let's loosen up a little bit. Did anybody bring an air guitar? Anybody got your air drums? You might want to pull them out right now. Hit it, Todd. Yeah, you might want to you might want to loosen up a little bit. That's a good groove right there. Don't act like that's not a good groove. If you're not bopping your head, I question whether you have a soul right now. Like it's that's just a good groove. It's Ben Harper and John Mayer. Come on. Anybody know this song yet? Yeah? Anybody else know this song? Yeah? Yeah. Uh, what's it called? You know, remember the name? What, what album's it on? Continuum, yeah. Uh, you know, somebody over here knew the song. What's the, you know the name? What's that? The name of the song? That's okay. Yeah, I know names of songs are hard. It's called Belief by a guy named John Mayer. And it was uh, released a while ago, and it became the number nine song in the country for quite a while. Also had huge play in South Africa for reasons I don't understand. Uh, but this song, like, really popular, and in some ways became, I think, an anthem for a generation. Let me show you the, some of the things that Mayer says in this song. Is there anyone who ever remembers changing their mind from the paint on a sign? Is there anyone who really recalls ever breaking rank at all for something someone yelled real loud one time? Oh, everyone believes in how they think it ought to be. Everyone believes, and they're not going easily. Belief is a beautiful armor but makes for the heaviest sword. Like punching underwater, you never can hit who you're trying for. We're never gonna win the world. We're never gonna stop the war. We're never gonna beat this if belief is what we're fighting for. This is an angsty song about belief. And it became pretty popular, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, in light of the generation that resonates with Mayer's music and the world that a lot of us have grown up in. Like, belief is a complicated thing. And, you know, this is a church, which means belief tends to be part of our business. Uh, we talk about being a community for believers and doubters and making a lot of room for all of that. Belief is part of our business, and it's a complicated subject matter in the modern world. I think there's many reasons for that, but a couple that I'll just call out right now. One is um, the optionality that's built into the modern world that's kind of new for most everyday human beings. And here's what I mean by that. I mean that up until very, very recently with the advent of the internet, 
Most of us in most of human history could grow up and spend most of our lives only hearing one fairly narrow worldview asserted, right? I'm like, you could grow up, I don't know, Presbyterian, and it's likely that you could go years or even decades where the only thing you would ever hear about God or faith would come from the particular pulpit in your particular church with a particular point of view, right? And, you know, swap out whatever variety of experience you have, but for a lot of human history and a lot of places and times, like you just weren't exposed to much beyond one angle on belief. And then with uh, globalism and the internet and the collision of cultures and all these things, now like a 10-year-old can go online and get exposed to, you know, explainers and pop lectures on all kinds of perspectives, on ultimate reality, on religion, on faith, on mystery. So I think like all the optionality baked into the modern world and the access that we have to it is one of the reasons that belief feels really complicated for a lot of us these days. Like, you actually have to exercise some muscles that you haven't used, perhaps, in earlier iterations of human experience to think about, like, what do you trust? What's true? What do you believe? And uh, one other big reason that belief is complicated for us, alongside, like, there's all this stuff about how belief gets weaponized and used in harmful ways, but that's, that's always been the case. But I think another thing going on right now is... Um, that for like the entire history of our species until very recently, like for 200,000 years, Homo sapiens have like been in an ecosystem, like a cultural environment where it's really easy to believe that there's more than what you can see and touch and taste and smell and hear. Like for the vast majority of thousands and thousands and thousands of years of Homo sapien history, whether you were gathered around the fire hearing stories from the elders or whether you were shown up at the cathedral. Like we lived in a whole sort of cultural, ideological milieu, like an environment, like an ecosystem. Like we were swimming in waters that made it really, really natural to assume that there's more, like with a capital M, that there's more than what you see and taste and touch and smell and hear. And that whatever that more is, that it's interactive with and showing up in the things that you see and taste and touch and smell and hear. I don't have time to like give you all the detail on that. For today, just take my word for it. That there's a lot of really, really smart people who have done this work and demonstrated that that was the case for, all, for almost the entire span of our species history. And then in the most recent stretch, in recent memory, we live in a different kind of world, a different kind of environment where a lot of different forces has come together to, to question that and to maybe suggest that there isn't more. Or if there is a more, that it has nothing to do with the things that we taste and touch and smell and see and hear. So there either isn't a more or there is a more, but it has nothing to do with us right here and right now. Now, before I get any further into that, a couple of notes. One, when I say that a bunch of stuff has come together to make it harder to believe those things, this is not like a culture war talk. Like, I'm not one of these people who thinks that there was like a little conspiracy of the libs that got together to like take your faith away from you. I don't think that's what's going on out there. I think like the reason we've ended up in this moment in cultural history where it's a little harder to make our way toward belief is complicated and nuanced. And it's not all bad, by the way. In some ways, it's a product of some really good things. But there's also a lot of evidence that it's not doing good things in us. I'm going to use a couple of big words here. I'm not trying to be fancy. I'll explain them, but they really help me understand this. Uh, some philosophers will talk about how in the modern world, we try to hold everything in an 
imminent frame. Imminent means like near, right? Like right in front of you, imminent, like the things that you can get your hands on. We try to hold everything inside this small little imminent frame. That's sort of the thing that we try to do in the modern world. But there's a, there's a growing amount of data and argument that suggests that, that it's really hard for us to flourish in life when all you have is the imminent frame of the, of the immediate experiences and the things that you can taste and touch and smell and see and hear and measure, the concrete, the physical, the material, the tangible. And there's a big argument to be made that like human beings flourish when they have more than the imminent frame, but when they have what you might call like a horizon of the infinite, meaning the big, big, cosmic, mysterious story the outlines of that big, big story like against which you find your individual life. Uh, frankly, on a good day, when things are going your way, it can do something to have a big cosmic story that you locate all that goodness in. A source to say thank you to. A story that draws meaning around that positive experience. On a really bad day, when everything seems to be working against you, or when those bad days get strung together into what feels like a whole lifetime of suffering and difficulty, it can be hard to flourish if all you have is what's right in front of you. And there's a pretty compelling argument with a lot of data behind it that suggests that humans flourish when they have a big cosmic story behind the individual experiences of your, of your imminent day-to-day -day life. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the big story is true. It could just mean that it's, you know, a, a clever, uh, useful construct that helps us flourish. That's a different argument for a different day. I'm just observing for now that belief is complicated in the modern world for a few reasons, and that some of that has made things harder for us. Uh, now, I promise I'm going somewhere with all of this, so just hang with me. I'm putting a few things on the table before we put it all together. Um, as early as the second century, Followers of Jesus gathering in communities like this one have included in their regular practice a kind of communal recitation. Like we would get together for like almost the entire history of Christianity, uh, Western church, Eastern church, north, south of the globe, like all over, get together. And in addition to like singing songs and receiving the Eucharist and hearing stories from scripture and the life of Jesus and checking in on the needs of our neighbor and wondering how we can take care of each other. In addition to all of those things that have always been with the church, another thing that has been with the church from almost the very beginning is that followers of Jesus have gotten together and like said out loud together some version of a story that includes the words like we believe. Like we believe in God the Father, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is like a normal practice. What I'm talking about is like the recitation of a creed. Now there's different creeds in the history of the church. Uh, Nicene Creed, Apostles Creed. There's actually many, many, many creeds. But it's been normal for most Christians in most places at most times to get together and say, we believe, and to kind of tell that story together. We don't tend to do that around Southland City Church, but I am curious, before I go any further into this, I, I wanna check in. So, so I grew up in churches that were very explicitly against the idea of a creed. It was it, like, there was some anti-Catholic prejudice and there was like some fears about that. And so we said things like no creed but the Bible, which is very confusing because the Bible is very confusing. But I'm curious, for those of you who grew up in a church, maybe you've had some part of your life where you spent time on Sundays or another hour of the week with Christians who recited a creed. 
Uh, raise your hand if, that, if that's been you at any point in your life. Is that any of you? Yeah, okay. Would anybody be willing, just, I'm genuinely curious, would you share just a little bit about what that was like for you? Was it positive or negative? Are you glad you had that experience? Was it difficult? Did it feel tired or rote or enlivening? Anybody? Yeah. Nice. Let me get that far. Raised Southern Baptist, but you had a kid when you were 13, and, you, and the family kind of took you in all around, right? So that meant you were getting pulled into everybody's different Sunday morning experience, Pentecostal, Catholic, everything, right? Yeah. Okay. And all around. <laughs> yeah. So what was the creed like? What was it like for you when you were there on a Sunday and they read the creed? As a child, I liked it. As a child, you liked it. What did you like about it? Oh, it made you, there was more than the bad parts of the world. But then as yeah. a teenager, I questioned that because I see people that would stand up and recite the creed like, you know, they are holier than thou and this is the way it is. Yeah. But yet on the outside world, he didn't show it. Let me get that far. So as a teenager, then you start to question it because you would see people who would recite it kind of holier than thou, this is the way it is, but they didn't show it in their life. Teenage life was confusing and rebellious. Yeah. And then, you know, I got married and had children. Mm-hmm. And I felt some comfort after reading many philosophies and other uh, books on many types of religions. And mm-hmm. I found out religion is man-made. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a word. <laughs> but the main common denominator is God. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a sense of peace. I love that. If you didn't hear that, she was saying that as she grew older, she did a lot of her own reading, exploring philosophies and all that, and all the kind of man-made parts of religion. But underneath it, you felt there's this thing called God that's real, and that gives you some comfort. Yeah, thanks. Who else? Who else had an experience with uh, some creedal recitations? Yeah. Yeah. So I thought there was something very, with that creed in particular, that it, gets, it brings in that Yogan language of God just being this light that's outgoing and poetry connected with the heart of that wasn't really engaged by the church itself. Got it. Yeah, let me see if I can summarize that well. Tell me if I got it right, in case you didn't hear. He was saying, I grew up young in particular in a church that uh, recited the Nicene Creed, which is one that you might have heard, like in a Catholic Mass. I think that's typically the Sunday Creed that's read. It's kind of a long creed, and it's got, especially around, like, how Jesus fits into the whole picture of God, some really beautiful language about light from light. Um, it's, it, you said it's right brain. It's, it's, it's pretty um, imaginative and beautiful, right? 
Uh, I heard you talk about getting older and a little cognitive dissonance. Uh, say that part for me again. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, he describes the kind of cognitive dissonance or inner, inner conflict around studying the sciences and kind of moving in that direction and bumping into some of the kind of logical problems with what you've been taught and inherited in church. But simultaneously, some of the poetry of the creed you still found like moving and beautiful. Get that close enough? That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Who else? Sometimes it's hard for me to see hands. Forgive me if I'm missing somebody here. Anybody? Yeah. Let me get that far in case you can't hear. Uh, Trish was saying after growing up evangelical, going to seminary where every day in chapel, the Apostles' Creed would be recited and it could be frustrating because it felt very rote and you would have competitions to see how fast you could get through it. Okay. Yeah. make sure I got that all right. And also, Trish did just preach my entire sermon, so thank you. <laughs> uh, Trish was talking about then um, working with the community and like writing together a version of the creed for the community and how beautiful that was. I heard you say um, that it's important to you that it's we believe, not I believe, because it's, um, a, it's a communal story, not a per- just a personal story, and you may not hold to all of it. There's a, a line in one of the creeds that says that he descended to hell, and you're like, I don't really care about that today. But the idea that, of Jesus being one with God feels really something that you, like, you have your hands on right now that you want to hold on to. Yeah? yeah? That's awesome. Nice. No matter what Christian I meet, we might be able to agree on this. I love it. I'm going to stop the open floor there in case some of you preach the rest of my sermon and we have nothing left for the day. That's really great. Thanks, Trish. Um, by the way, I know others in the room have never recited a creed. This all feels like very academic or weird right now. We're going to work really hard to get out of that mode. Um, so I understand that, right? But it is interesting that for a lot of people who have some kind of Christian or religious experience uh, in their background, some version of saying out loud together, we believe is part of your life together, and it's actually never really been a part of South and City Church's practicing life. That being said, um, I don't know if you've noticed this. This has been on our website from the very beginning. This is language we've always had on our website. We trust the Bible as it points to Jesus, and we trust the Apostles' Creed as a guiding interpretation of what it teaches. 
Now, that may not mean that because you're here this morning that you agree with all of that, but that's our way of saying, like, as we lead, as we teach, as we work together and move forward, this is sort of the orienting center for us. We trust the Bible as it points to Jesus, and we trust the Apostles' Creed as a guiding interpretation of what it teaches. And I've just kind of realized we've never dug into this. And that seems problematic for a community that doesn't want to have statements on websites that turn into wallpaper, which can happen with any kind of organization or church. We want to actually dig into it. And today I'm just going to try to make the case that it's way better and more beautiful than it might sound to you. And I'm going to try to frame it in a way that might be different than the way that you've heard it framed before. But before we go any further, we should probably read the Apostles' Creed. Now, I'm not going to make you read it, but I'm, I'm going to share it with you in case you haven't heard these words or in case a quick refresher is helpful. Let me share this now. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's what we're talking about. Now, um, now, maybe when you hear that, you're asking, like, what is that doing? Is it just here to help us pass a theology exam, most of us, which, like, we'll never take in our lives? Uh, you might be asking, like, is this just powerful European men telling us what to think? They got to laugh at the nine. Nobody here? Okay. Maybe a little too close to home for the thoughts in the room. I don't know. Is this just like an exercise of power and politics that comes out of like European Christendom, of people gathering together in councils with the emperor telling you what to think? I mean, that's a fair question, and there is some complicated history around like Christian teaching and European power. That's true. Although I will tell you the Apostles' Creed, the, the basic outlines of everything I just read to you, shows like versions of that, the, the basic outlines of it, show up as early as like the second century. Like there's a guy named Irenaeus who had written uh, Irenaeus is in sort of modern-day Turkey. He's a, a Greek person in the church that's being persecuted by the empire at a time when there was absolutely nothing powerful in the kind of political or structural sense about the church. And yet all the way back there, you, you see the followers of Jesus writing out and saying together some version of what I just read to you. Uh, you might ask, is it just like stifling our ability to like innovate and locate God in our world? Is it sort of like frozen in time and like to have a creed? Is it just meant to shut down the imagination and like abdicate and outsource all of the creative thinking to people who have long since been dead? I mean, that's a fair question because sometimes that's how the creed gets used, right? But there are other ways the creed can get used, like to awaken an imagination. Uh, Trish talked about helping a community write out a version of the creed. There's an interesting uh, example from the 1960s in East Africa among the Maasai people. Uh, they had like inherited the Apostles' Creed from Christian missionaries and found it to be like a, an enlivening faith for themselves, but they also felt that they needed something that located the story in their own context and culture. And so in the 1960s, they come out with a, a, what's called today the Maasai Creed. And I find this creed so beautiful and, and kind of playful and, and an example of the way that an old creed can awaken a new imagination for the world that you're living in right now. Let me share this with you. This is uh, the creed uh, come up with by the Maasai people. We believe in the one high God of love who created the beautiful world and everything good in it. He created man and wanted man to be happy in the world. God loves the world and every nation and tribe in the world. We've known this God in darkness and we now know this God in light. 
God promised in his book, the Bible, that he would save the world and all the nations and tribes. We believe that God made good on his promise by sending his son, Jesus Christ, a man by the flesh, a Jew by tribe, born poor in a little village who left his home and was always on safari, doing good, curing people by the power of God, teaching about God and man, and showing that the meaning of religion is love. He was rejected by his people, tortured, and nailed hands and feet to a cross, and he died. He lay buried in the grave, but the hyenas did not touch him. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. He ascended to the skies. He is Lord. We believe that all our sins are forgiven through him, that all who have faith in him must be sorry about their sins, be baptized in the Holy Spirit of God, live by the rules of love, and share the bread together to announce the good news to others until Jesus comes again. We are waiting for him. He is alive. He lives. This we believe. Amen. To me, that's just one beautiful example of people who inherited the creed and then discovered that it had awakened their imagination to say something new about God in their own context because of what they had received. So I'm not sure that creeds have to be a way of just freezing our thinking in old time. I think creeds can do new things and give birth to new things. Uh, another note that I'm gonna try to make the case for in the weeks ahead is the creed's actually quite surprising in how little it tells you about what to think. It leaves a million questions unanswered, which I find really exciting about it, actually. Uh, I think of the creed less like a box for your brain to live in and a little bit more like the wardrobe and the Narnia stories that like, looks like a small little package, but then you enter into it and find a whole world on the other side of it that's actually always been here with us, but it's sort of a gateway into that imagination. Uh, and another way of talking about what the creed is doing right now, like what it could actually do for us, what, like why would you want to have a roughly 1,600-year-old creed in the modern world? I think one other reason for that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about complications with belief and the optionality of the world that we're living in. Let me just check in real quick. Like, has anybody for any, at any moment just felt kind of exhausted by all, all the options of like belief, faith, politics, the, the, the limitless angles on any issue or question, all the different ways that you can think, all the different talking points. Has ever, anybody like found that to be a sort of exhausting sort of feature of modern life? Well, you're not crazy. It is. And it's kind of new for human experience. And one of the ways that you know that we are tired of all the optionality is for what's happening in the consumer market. So hang with me for a moment. There's a trend that's been developing in a bunch of different areas of the consumer market that's fascinating for anybody who's thinking about optionality and anchoring yourself in something that's given to you rather than something that you choose for yourself. It shows up in restaurant spaces and in other kind of consumer goods. In the restaurant spaces, anybody ever heard of a tasting menu? This uh, develops in the 1990s as a major trend in high-end restaurants in the United States. Still a really big deal. In fact, if you go to virtually any of the highest-end, most highly-rated restaurants in the country, you're not going to be given a menu. People will pay more to go to a restaurant where they don't care what you want, and they don't even ask you. You just sit your butt in the chair, and you eat whatever the chef puts in front of you. That's the tasting menu experience, and it happens to be the experience at most of the high-end restaurants in America and around the world these days. It's not just restaurants, though. 
Uh, consumer boxes. Is anybody a subscriber to any kind of consumer box? Like Trunk Club was this thing a while ago for like guys who didn't want to have to pick out their own clothes, but you kind of tell them your taste and they send you clothing that's in your size. Uh, anybody do like HelloFresh or Blue Apron or any of those other kind of like diet, like, like food box meals, right? Well, it's, it's not just that you have the convenience of somebody sending you the ingredients prepped. You didn't have to decide what to eat. These are massive trends. Like a luxury now is finding a source that you trust to make the decision for you. That's actually considered a luxury in the modern world, and I, I think it's a symptom of a world with such limitless optionality that we are exhausted by it. That's one way of saying, I think, one of the gifts that we get from the creed is a sort of grounding or anchoring point that doesn't take all the questions off the table. It doesn't, it doesn't um, claim to be infallible in, in sort of this way that we would think of like two plus two equals four is infallible. And yet, to have a creed is to believe that you found a trustworthy source to put in front of you for you to receive something that's already been curated for your good, for your benefit. Like here's something good and trustworthy, and not just good and trustworthy, but beautiful. And you don't have to come up with it from scratch. And you don't have to make all the decisions. Like you can inherit this from a trustworthy source. I think this is one of the gifts of having a creed. Now, um, in the world that we live in, creeds and doctrines often end up being about the mental furniture in your head. And I think a lot of us in this community have found that only goes so far, right? Like, can, can you get all the doctrinal bullet points just quite right? And how many fights are we going to have about who's got the right doctrinal bullet points? And what do you even do with the fact that the ideas in our heads don't always seem to shape the life that we live, like you were talking about, right? That you can have all the right ideas and, like, not be transformed by any of these things. So who really cares what's in your head if you're going to go out and be the kind of person that you've always been, right? But I want to I suggest, as we talk about what a creed is for, that it's actually not primarily about just, like, the mental furniture in your head, that it's trying to speak to a deeper part of you, and the case that I can make for the fact that a creed is trying to speak to a deeper part of you goes back to the original language of the creed. Now, uh, when we recite the creeds, we usually say, I believe, but that comes from, from a translation of the Latin. And the first word in the creed in Latin is this, credo. Why don't you try saying that in three? One, two, three. Credo. Yeah, good Latin, very nice. Credo, uh, this is usually translated, I believe, but Diana Eck, a scholar at Harvard who's an expert on world religions, uh, makes the argument that the, the word credo in its Latin etymology would be better translated, I give my heart. Does that not immediately shift something in the way that you relate to like a long list of sentences that maybe feel kind of old and tired? I give my heart. If that's the first sentiment of the creed, then surely it's about something deeper and more transformative than the, the mental furniture in your head. Uh, how about this? In English, we usually say, uh, I believe. Um, the word believe, though, even, um, is perhaps a little closer than you think to this sort of like integrative, heartfelt relationship with these ideas. Frederick Buechner, a theologian and author who just died recently, made this point that believe actually has its roots in this sort of translation, beloved. I'm trying to say, like, to have a creed is not just to have a, a list of, of doctrinal bullet points in your head that we can argue about and fight about who's right or wrong. I'm trying to say, perhaps, it's, it's more like having a trustworthy story that we have inherited, one that's worthy of our heart, of our affection, one that's worthy of living into, of, of sort of, like, resting in. 
Um, this is the, like the, the heart of the way they actually, like the scriptures talk about like the good news that the church has always been trying to tell. It's interesting at the very, very, very end of John's gospel, the last of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, um, there's like one final story and then the statement that I'm about to show you. The final story is a guy named Thomas who had been one of Jesus' friends and followers. And Thomas was having a hard time with the whole resurrection thing. So by the way, if you have a hard time with the resurrection thing, you're in good company, okay? But he's like, I'm not going to believe it till I see it. And then Jesus appears to him uh, where Jesus invites him to like actually place his hands on the wounds of his resurrected body. And then it's in that moment that Thomas says, my Lord and my God, that he has this sort of awakening encounter with the resurrected Christ. So there's that story at the end of John's gospel. And then right after that, the final words, we read this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, if belief is just reduced to the mental furniture, then this sounds like I have written this to argue with you, to get you to agree with me. But if belief is about beloved, if it's about what kind of story do you give your heart to, if it's about trust, then the, like the whole character of this entire enterprise shifts a little bit. And it begins to take on the feeling that people have discovered something good and reliable and beautiful and worthwhile and they want to share it with you. They've discovered a kind of narrating story for that big cosmic frame that our imminent little lives are located in, like generation after generation after generation. Poor Christians, rich Christians, Eastern Christians, Western Christians, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, high church, low church, like a ton of people in the actual lived experience of their lives have come along again and again, generation after generation to say, I have something trustworthy to share with you about the big cosmic story within which your life is located. It's good and it's beautiful. And I, I want you to rely on it because it's been really helpful in my life. It's, uh, when, when John's gospel says, I tell this story that you may have life in his name. It's like th this is a thing that makes you come alive when you trust it, when you let your heart settle down into it. It's like actually good for you to receive this. I had a very, very trivial version of this feeling on the sharing side of things uh, this week. Friends of mine who were in the room, who I won't point out, uh, had um, an electrical failure at their house where uh, during the storm that we had, uh, like at the beginning of the week, I guess, not only did they lose their electrical, but the, like the tree fell and it ripped the electric from the, the main kind of power source to their house. And you know that thing on the side of your house, and I have no idea what it's called, where all the power comes in? You know, like the metal thing, like the ugly thing on the side of your house where the, where the wire comes, right? Well, it got ripped off their house. So it's not as simple as them waiting for AEP to come along and reconnect the power because you're responsible for that part, apparently, even though you never had anything to do with it in the first place, but it's your problem. So they had to figure out how they were going to find an electrician to get this thing fixed before they could call AEP and get the power back. And in that moment, I just genuinely felt this thing leaping up inside because years ago, I had a disaster of a house that I've told you guys about way too many times. But I found a savior for my house, a very strange handyman whose name I will not share with you. I shared it in the nine. I probably shouldn't have because I want to tell you how strange he is. And it's not nice to call people strange and use their name on stage. <laughs> so he's, he's like one of the weirdest guys I've ever worked with, but he was so good. I'm telling you, he like, he rescued the project. He was fastidious and careful and productive and everything he got his hands on in my house got better. And at the end of it, I wanted the whole world to know about this guy because when you are in it, when you're up against it, it's nice to know who a good handyman is, right? Now, that could get turned into a really cheesy metaphor about Jesus the handyman. I'm not going to do that, okay? <laughs> That's like some Sunday school nonsense I'm not going to push on you right now. But I know what it felt like to say, I've been in your situation and I've found something trustworthy and I really want to share it with you. 
That's not about arguing with you. That's not about excluding you if you don't take advantage of what I'm sharing with you. That's not about thinking I'm better than you because I think these things and you don't. It's simply about saying, like, like I found something trustworthy and it's been good and redemptive and beautiful in my life. And it sounds like you could use something like that. So I would like to share it with you right now. I think that's the heart of a story about believing and trusting. I think that's the heart behind having a creed and sharing it. So for all of these reasons, we're going to hang out there for a while. Uh, guys, I don't know how long this is going to take. I mean, not today. We're almost done today. I mean, like, I mean, um, we're going to spend uh, the weeks ahead in a series that we're going to call Old Creed, New World. Old Creed, because it is an old creed. It's old, old wisdom that has been vetted and tested again and again and handed down again and again. And we're going to try to hear it as a story that we can trust as that, that big cosmic story, that big transcendent, that, that horizon of the infinite against which your life is cast. We're going to try to hear that. But also new world. Because we have brains and lives and experiences and we have new questions that we're asking and we're not going to pretend that the creed answers all those questions. Sometimes it just raises questions and we're going to explore those too. Examples. The creed talks about a creator God. Well, for a couple hundred years now, most scientists have understood that whatever it is that brought us here, this like life that we see on the world around us, it seems to have come from this like billions of years long evolutionary process. And some Christians um, are perhaps really threatened by that. But another way that you could go is to say, that's interesting. What would you do if you integrated that? That would be a way of taking an old creed and putting it in a conversation with a new world and seeing what happens. That's interesting, right? Uh, old creed, new world. Uh, the creed calls God Father. Wonderful. Awful. Like really problematic and confusing and complicated and, and terrific and great. And we should explore that a little bit, especially when so much patriarchy has been perpetuated by so much bad religion. These are just a couple of little tastes, a couple of little examples of ways that we can like dance with this. And like, what I really hope you will hear in all this is a kind of playfulness. I think the creed is a gift of the imagination, a way to kind of step through the wardrobe into like the big world of Narnia, to be like our, our sisters and brothers, the Maasai, who felt empowered to not just inherit a creed, but to make one of their own, to say that God is also wrapped up in the flesh and blood and culture of context of our people in time and place. And so we're going to play around with old creed and new world. Uh, today was really just uh, meant to frame it for us. But I do want to send us home with a question, something that might help us bring more of ourselves to the conversation that we're going to have over the next um, several weeks. And the question is simply this. What story or stories do you trust to narrate the world? Now, I know most of us aren't walking around every day thinking, here's the story that I trust to narrate the world. Like, that's not the way people think and talk. I get that. But let me push a little further in. On a good day, when you achieve some success, when you fall in love, when you receive a gift, when you just knock it out of the park on a good day, what's the bigger story that you put around that experience to, to help you make sense of it? What feelings come along with that? Is it that you've received a gift? Is it that you've uh, fought your way to the top? Well, those are probably feelings that come from different narrating stories, right? So on a good day, what's the story that you put around a good day? How about this, on a bad day, What's the story that you put around that? Or what about, what, not just a bad day, what about a whole string of bad days? What if it feels like your life has been a succession of bad days, hard days? What about the days when it feels like more is against you than is for you? What about those members of our community who, especially because of their identity or social location, find that a lot of systems and structures are against them rather than for them? What do you do to narrate your life on a bad day or with a whole string of bad days? 
Do you decide that this is a story that confirms for you that the deepest forces of reality are either ambivalent towards you at best or against you at worst? Or do you have some other story that wraps around those bad day experiences? How about this? What about all the regular days? Where nothing particularly noteworthy seems to happen. You, you know, you made the kids lunches for school, but you realize you were missing a couple of the ingredients in the, in the fridge, and so you hope they don't notice before they open up their lunch bag so they don't complain to you about it. And you went to your job, and you, you put in your work day, and nothing particularly monumental happened. Like, how do you narrate the everydays, the average days, the, the days that actually shape the majority of our lives? The tedium, like the minutia, like what does it mean? Does it mean anything at all? It's probably, like however you feel about those things, it's probably a result of whatever story you actually trust to narrate the world. And this isn't like a quiz with a right or wrong answer. It's just a great thing for us to explore for ourselves. Like what are the story or stories that we trust to narrate the world? So take that with you. And then to come back to the point that Trish completely spoiled for me when she shared so brilliantly earlier, I want to say one more thing about this, and this comes both from Trish and from a, a brilliant historian of theology, a guy named Yaroslav Pelikan. That's actually a name, believe it or not. Uh, Pelikan is, has been one of the world's preeminent experts on uh, creeds. He wrote a compendium of like a thousand historical creeds from around the world. And in a conversation about his work, he, he said very clearly to the person interviewing him, he said, just so you know, for me, one thing a creed is not asking me to do is to say like, what well, now, it's 12.06 p.m. on a Sunday. What are all the things I personally think and believe about God and faith? He said, that's not what the creed is doing. He said it's doing something else. And to make his point further, he said, one of the problems with the way the creeds are recited today is that they usually begin with the words, I believe. But he said in, in, in the earliest days of the creeds, they were never I believe, they were always we believe. Because what I'm not trying to do is like, argue with you as a person or push you as a person into agreeing with, with me or with the history. I'm not trying to just push the mental furniture around in your head with this teaching series. But I am trying to say that to be a part of the church global, I don't just mean South and City Church, I mean the church global and historical. I mean 2,000 years of, of um, radical, surprising movement and revolution and change and sustaining pace in the world. Like all of that, to be a part of this family, poor church, rich church, high church, low church, east church, west church, like to be a part of this family is to be, is to be part of a community who trusts this story. And I, like I find that so liberating because like as the pastor, as the preacher, I can tell you there are days when I feel full of belief and days when I don't. And there are days when part of the story makes a lot of sense to me where part of the story seems obscure or irrelevant or untrustworthy. And on those days, I'm learning to trust what it means to be part of a community, of a family that says we carry the story together. It's not a thing for a person to carry on their own because it's too big and too heavy for you to carry it on your own anyway. Have you ever had a day when you're having a hard time believing good things about yourself and somebody else looked you in the eye and, and, and perhaps different words basically said, I know you're having a hard time believing this for you right now, but I'm going to believe it on your behalf. And later in a different season, perhaps when you're not so deeply wounded or struggling so much, you'll be able to believe it for yourself. But today I'm going to believe it for you. I'm going I'm to shoulder this alongside you because perhaps you're having a hard time carrying it right now. To me, that's what it's like to be a part of a living, breathing church. There are days when any of us in the room might have a hard time believing that there actually is a, a good creator behind the whole story. 
because you read the news and it seems like most of the evidence is to the contrary, that's okay. You know, come join the family of people who say, on days when you're having a hard time believing it, we together still carry this story and are learning to trust that there is more going on here than what's in the headlines. On the days when you feel like you are on your own in your, your journey toward healing or growth, we get to be the family, the community, a part of the big global thing who says, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that like, there's a breath in our lungs that is breathing for us on the days when we feel like we are suffocating. And it's, it's for us and for our becoming and for our healing and, and for our growth. And it's okay if you don't feel that today. We can carry that story together on the days when you don't yourself, right? And on the days when, when the fleshy details of your actual life, I mean, the particularities of your experience and context feel far removed from the life of God. We're a community that says we believe that God lived God's life in a brown-skinned man in the first century who was executed by the state. In the fleshy details of a lived experience with dust on his feet, that every part of being human was his experience, and we trust that that's actually where you locate God. Not in the ethereal, not in the abstract, not in the cloud above the heavens, but like in the fleshy details of life, of suffering, of longing, of friendship, of desire, of hope, of shared meals. Like that's where we locate God. And if you're having a hard time doing that in your life, that's okay. The point here is for us to be a community that carries this story together um, so that we can kind of combine our strengths and carry one another in our weaknesses. And um, so that we have laid hold of that big cosmic backdrop to the day-to-day moments of our lives. And I think we'll be better off for it. So that's where we're headed. Sound good? Cool. Like I said, I, don't, I really have no idea how long this is going to take, so hold on to your butts. Uh, there's 12 clauses in the, in, the, in the creed, so we'll do at least 12 weeks, but who knows? We might do a lot more. Um, but that's it for today. That's all I'm going to subject you to today. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? If belief is complicated for you, may you know that you're not crazy and you're not alone. And yet, may we be a family that is learning to trust the story of a creator God, a God who wills that we are here, who desires that you exist, you, your story. Uh, May we trust that that God has lived God's life in the body of a person, fleshed out in all of the details of his first century life. So that if God lives God's life in that body, perhaps God could live God's life in yours and mine. And may you sense the Holy Spirit breathing in your lungs in the days when you are suffocating, trusting that we are part of a story of a God who has not forgotten us or abandoned us, but who breathes in us today. Um, May we give our heart to the story. May we find the belovedness that it is telling us and the world. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week. And go Irish.